Welcome to Hooked on Bond, where three long-time fans discuss the James Bond films. Welcome to episode 10. We are talking about The Spy Who Loved Me from 1977, starring Roger Moore as James Bond. So, Edmund, why don't you give us a brief plot summary here? Sure. This is uh, another of those films that uh, starts off with uh, a mysterious event on a, uh, a government vessel, only this time we're on a submarine that uh, starts running in, running into trouble. And uh, um, unlike some of the earlier films, it is actually left uh, more in suspense this time what actually happens. All we know is that a submarine has disappeared. It turns out the Russians have also lost a sub. And uh, so the their, the various secret services have to turn to their best spies to uh, look into this and try and figure out what's going on, while at the same time looking over each other's shoulders, of course, to uh, and uh, try and allay or confirm their suspicions that it really is the, that other side. And uh, so that uh, winds up with... Our uh, dashing Mr. Bond uh, going up against Triple X from uh, the Russian side, and uh, who turns out to be uh, both uh, ally or temporary ally and uh, master spy and Bond girl rolled all into one with uh, Barbara Box appearance, and uh, so the uh, the two of them wind up uh, jetting around the world. Um, this is a bit of a return to Bond as travelogue. Basically, man, you know, our, our sort of collaborating with each other and as well as trying to get uh, one up on each other most of this time, but uh, eventually do track down the master villain and uh, of course all leads to uh, a, a another huge set-piece finale where uh, they uh, have to uh, thwart the plan and take down the villain and uh, in the end uh, bring the world back together again. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so as you mentioned, this gives us Barbara Bach playing Major Anya Am Amosova or a uh, Agent Triple X, who is definitely the, the main Bond girl in here and the primary ally. The master villain is Carl Stromberg, played by Kurt Jurgens. Yeah, Jurgens is a, was a well-known German actor who did some did some movies as uh, sometimes played the German in a couple of uh, well-known war war movies. Um, and I think it was sort of a late recasting. I think that the villains were supposed to be Spectre. But there was a lawsuit which basically forced them to rewrite it. A lawsuit from Kevin McClory, the producer of Thunderball, who owned the rights to Spectre. And so they had to sort of rewrite it as Stromberg. Yeah, and I think this is one of those one of the reasons why this one did take a, a little longer to come out. We actually had a, a, a another three-year three, three year gap rather than the two-year gap between the previous ones where it... Uh, yeah, it took took them that that uh, little while to uh, get back on track again. Yeah. Also, the other key difference is that, and one of the reasons for the delay was that Harry Saltzman basically had to sell his uh, his half of the Bond franchise to Cubby to get out of his financial difficulties. But there were some problems during that period as well, which led to a bit of a delay. That's right. So you had the the franchise 
previously being uh, produced and guided by these two men, uh, Cubby Broccoli and uh, and Harry Saltzman, going down to to one person, you know, Albert R. Broccoli, really takes it over um, on his own from this point. Yep, although Michael Wilson was there working with him. Yes, that's that's true, yeah. Uh, and it is worth pointing out that the three-year gap uh, was not... And not actually quite three years, because uh, The Man with the Golden Gun came out, I believe, in December of 74. And this was, uh, this was August of 77. So it was, um, uh, a, you know, a, a little bit shy of, uh, of three years. It was between two and a half and three. And I would say you could see how this has something of a specter feel to it, because the villains are playing the West and the Soviets off each other. Yeah, it's a repeat of the plot from You Only Live Twice, and the movie also features the same director as You Only Live Twice, so he, I'm sure he noticed the coincidental plot lines. In fact, there, there are some elements of the movie where the, the scenes are exactly the same. Uh, a couple of sequences that are directly copied from You Only Live Twice. And that I'm thinking in particular of uh, when Bond is escaping on the tanker. It's the same scenes as the when he's sort of breaking into the uh, into the volcano. He sort of sneaks onto the monorail and he uses it to get to the prisoners area where he releases them. It's exactly the same. Yes, scene. yes, yes that's, that's right. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean even it's even, even the same it. set design, except yeah. this is a little more modular. Yeah, right. <laughs> Instead of rocks, it's metal walls, but it's exactly. The same yeah, yeah, and then and even though it's on, you know, it is water and submarines. I mean, you know, even the whole, you know, tanker enveloping the subs, you know, is you know is kind of just the the aquatic equivalent of uh, you know the orbital captures of you only live twice. Yes, absolutely. There was a lot in common there. I did like the reference where Bond asked uh, the villain Stromberg. Uh, about what he was holding the uh, the governments to ransom for, and he said, "You know, why why would I bother doing a ransom?" <laughs> so, which uh, you know, because Spectre and Blofeld, of course, repeatedly had this theme of them uh, holding the world for ransom. Yeah, whereas Stromberg really his plan was to literally cause the the world to destroy itself in a nuclear war, a massive nuclear war. And then he could basically rebuild humanity under the sea, yes. <laughs> literally under the sea in his underwater city. And yeah. I guess one of the funny things about this movie is it doesn't really work because, yes, he might have launched missiles against New York and Moscow. But since the Russians knew one of their subs had been stolen and the British and now the Americans also would have known that their subs had gone missing, in theory, there wouldn't have been a nuclear war because the parties would have said, well, someone's stolen our subs and is doing this to us yes <laughs> as opposed to like a full-scale strike so it always it, it never would have worked but yeah bunkers plot it's pretty good yeah i guess the the idea was that it would sort of spiral out of control with each each side thinks the other is attacking it yeah and frankly it's it's a it's a plot line and, and a movie mistake in a way that people keep making if anyone saw the last mission impossible movie that came out last year it's the same plot the villain wants to launch a missile like the villain is a guy who wants to blow up the world because he wants to see what will happen next 
So he launches a, a missile at the U.S., and the U.S. is, of course, going to retaliate with total nuclear war, which makes no sense because they know someone's just stolen the missile code. So clearly it's some rogue guy. But the movie forgets about that at the end. And, and this movie does the same. It sort of forgets that saner heads should likely prevail. Yes, and it's one sub being stolen. It's not, or one sub disappear, disappearing, being attacked, whatever. It's not a massive assault, which is what you, you know, you would, uh, you, you would, you would expect in theory. That's right. Both cities being destroyed at exactly the same time usually would imply it was someone else. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, but, uh, yeah, but it's, it's, it is certainly one of those conveniences, you know, although, you know, you could, you could maybe give them points in terms of, you know, well, yes, of course, if these two master spies hadn't tracked down so much of the plot before you put it into motion, but, uh, you know, if, if, if he was able to do it surreptitiously as originally planned, but... Uh, <laughs> But but even then, one of the things that's always, that has always kind of amused me is in terms of you know you know knowing just how extreme on arsenal those nuclear subs had. It's like yes, why are you firing just one missile? <laughs> You've got <laughs> in most cases twelve apiece on each of the subs, so you you actually could really wreak some confusing havoc. But <laughs> yes, fortunately, the sub commanders were happy to change the change the launch targets of their missiles at the last second yes <laughs> <laughs> for no real good reason <laughs> yes they, they were ordered to right yes they yes. follow orders yeah yes. I, I don't know who those crews who took over were <laughs> he was stealing the subs to use them i don't know who is who his crews wearing the red uniforms were and why they were following him but apparently i don't know he had mercenaries or something uh, in other characters, in villains, there's someone we can't go very long without mentioning. <laughs> and that's uh, Richard Keel in the role of Jaws. Yes. Uh, our, you know, every, everyone's favorite seven foot two Bond villain actor. Yes, the, the, the indestructible man. <laughs> he does seem to be quite indestructible, doesn't, doesn't he? They seem yes. to put him through all sorts of things. Yep. And yeah, it always yeah, it always made me wonder. It's like you know, okay, is it just the teeth, or does he have like like an entire metal skeleton under under there? <laughs> I don't know. He has these enormous metal teeth, which uh, you know he manages to bite through you know all manner of things with them. And more slapsticky moments. Moore's punched him in other places and gotten a metallic clang. So who knows? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who knows exactly where uh, how much of him is really metal? Or is meant to be metal. Yes, but he's also punched him and had like a sort of drum beat kind of sound, like a yep. drum head sound. Yeah. Um, so it was interesting with Jaws because there were moments when they used him sort of for comic effect. Uh, Jaws doesn't speak, by the way, in this film, anyhow. There were no. moments where they use him for comic effect, but there are also a lot of points where they make him pretty intimidating and pretty sort of brutal and scary. Oh, yeah, sinister, I would say. Yeah. Like, there's the shot of him in the, in the train. When she opens up the train, Is clearly meant to be a, 
like one of those shock moments. It's played along with the train, the train noise screams to cover it. It's meant to be like a horror movie scare, which is yeah. unusual for Bond movies. They don't usually go in for that. Um, but this movie, this movie does have a lot more atmosphere. I think, uh, like we look back at previous movies with directed by Guy Hamilton. Those guys had done enough Bond movies. They were making them fairly lighthearted. But Lewis Gilbert brings a certain amount of style, or, or um, I don't know, if it's the mood maybe. But his movies feel more uh, sinister. There's something more weird about them. Whether it's and I don't know whether it's the the amazing set work from Ken Adam that really really that works. helps yeah. that helps a lot. But it just it just works. There's scary but humor. The humor and the and the darkness me- mesh really well. I find, and I think they do this even in in later movies when it gets a little more slapstick than even this movie was. Yeah, I think the balance was pretty good in this one, that you definitely had some of the humor there, but it was not allowed to dominate. There was a moment when one of the characters goes to take a telephone call, and it wasn't really a telephone call, it was Jaws waiting for him, mm-hmm. and you have this character being being killed in this little, this little booth with, like, um a sort of wood mesh or wicker mesh between us and the you know the car- the the two these two men and you know you get sort of odd angles and odd shadows and it did have a very sort of sinister dark feel to it and that worked very well i thought yeah and i mean that also comes right after the pyramid sequence which uses the lights and the music to create similar a similar element when when um when Jaws kills Fekesh at the pyramids, it's also done in a very sinister, dark way. Yes, you had the um, the sort of nice use there where uh, there was some show about the pyramids going on at the base of the pyramids or something that was using this stage lighting that they were just sort of catching the edge of. So as lights would uh, you know, turn on or be dimmed up and then dimmed down again, uh, they would go, the characters would go from being in bright light to being in darkness very quickly. And yeah, that was used quite effectively, I thought. And it leads to like the sort of the uh, unveiling of Anya to Bond in a sort of a heavenly glow with, uh, with a sort of a choir of voices over it. It's, it's a very dramatic scene. It's it's funny, but it's it's also it just seems on a level higher than previous movies have tried. Yeah, it was something that uh, that worked quite well. It was it was interesting, and then it it leads us into um, the the sequence where we have uh, um, M's office now in the pyramids, apparently. <laughs> Um, but we get sort of the alliance being set up where, uh, Bond and Amasova are going to be working together and their superiors are telling them they're going to be working together. Uh, and that was sort of interesting stuff, I thought. Mm-hmm. And we have the introduction of General Gogol. Who, That's right. This is his first. This is film. his first one. How many yeah, films? Absolutely. How many of the Bond films was Gogol in? Well, he was in everything from this movie through The Living Daylights. Okay, yeah. so, so it's quite a number there. Yes, the next six movies, I think, maybe or. 
one, two, three, four, five, five, the next five movies at least, so plus yeah. this. So he's in six movies, and the actor Walter Gotell had previously played, um, he'd previously played a Spectre, the head of Spectre Island, and one of the main Spectre henchmen in From Russia with Love. With Love, that's right, yeah. So it was sort of a, another, like, he's older now, he doesn't look like that guy as much, we can find a good character for him. And mm-hmm. uh, the character works really well, because of course this was an era where there was, there was an attempt at a bit more data taunt and you know the russians they were trying to open up a little bit uh, so obviously this was uh, a nice way to get around it yeah it was interesting because at the beginning of the film uh you you know you don't know um uh where he stands and it, it seems like he's going to be the villain and uh, Agent Triple X will be uh, potentially uh, a villain as well, or would betray Gogol to be one of the the good guys. But they actually, you know, have you know Gogol very quickly becomes the uh, you know the good Russian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was interesting how they did that because they definitely emphasized that there was something of um, the there was some distrust there and it was sort of very uh sort of temporary shaky alliances yeah although it's funny the first scene with him is actually one in which he's he comforts her he's actually very m-like he's more of a a father figure to her well there was a scene before that when he was on his own right oh that's true when he gets called in the first in the opening scene i guess we i mean we should go back and, and and say that there's quite a lot of great setup in the opening sequence which is 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 probably the best opening sequence of any james bond movie but mm-hmm. within the first 10 minutes alone the movie sets up uh, a bunch of characters sets up the central premise uh, it introduces uh, what starts off with the the submarine disappearing and we learn that the russians have lost the submarine as well and each team sets up their best agents and another part of the playful way that this is done is in the first scene with triple x when the russians are contacting their best agent it's the audience would assume i mean if they didn't know but the audience would assume that the guy was the agent and the guy is basically the russian james bond he looks right. like a young connery he could have easily been like i think they'd even cast the actor as someone who they thought might be a james bond type character for them you know oh, absolutely so you're supposed to think it's him at first then it turns out to be her then we set up very quickly that he's going on a mission and the next scene he's on his mission where it turns out he's actually hunting bond uh and bond ends up killing him and this is all done very quickly but with enough information that we all got the gist of what had happened it was uh, a little bit graphic how he was killed actually it was like a huge hole blown into <laughs> blown yeah, into sort his of chest i wasn't expecting from- that no, and of course this leads into possibly one of the best stunts of the entire series, which is the incredible ski jump, um, yeah. which just launches the picture. Now, I should also say, this film was my first James Bond movie. Uh, I went to it in the theaters with my father, and prior to this I'd never seen and probably never even heard of James Bond. I was eight. And aside from having some James Bonds late night on repeats, there was no way I would have really known much about him. And I'd never seen a movie, so my first exposure was this opening scene, which was incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and it, it, was, it is a it is a fantastic scene, and it was um, uh, you know, they brought in um, like a competitive um, ski stunt person to do this um, 
this uh, very complicated jump that ends with, uh, you know, with a parachute jump. And uh, it was sort of just barely at the level of something that could actually be done. Yeah. Uh, oh, and yeah. they had to wait some time before they had the weather where they could do it. Yeah, they had to find the one one location in the world where they could do it. <laughs> and when they got there, it was too windy. Yeah. And they waited a, you know, a couple of days, and uh, uh, Cubby Broccoli thought that the guy who was planning to do it maybe had decided that, uh, that he wasn't up for it or whatever, and, you know, calls him, and the guy said, look, I'm just waiting for the wind to calm down. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, when they when they they got it, it really um, it really looks impressive. It really looks very good. Yeah, and, and the other thing about it was they had like four cameramen, helicopter. They had uh, cameramen on the on the sides, and 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 all trying to get the shot. And most and of them missed it. Most of them missed the shot. Only one guy got the shot, and so if you when you see the movie, it's just one shot, one take, one one continuous shot of the guy falling into space. But like the other the other guys all missed him at various points, so they they couldn't go with those things. But thank God, one of the cameramen got it. I think it was really effective, actually, that it was the one continuous shot. Yeah, uh, that you know you can really see that it's. You know, it really is one jump. It's not, uh, you know, some tricky cut and, you know, two different, you know, one ski jumper and one parachute jumper, you know, somehow composited together. It really, you know, it really looks good from uh, doing doing it that way. Yeah, apparently they had a helicopter there, you know, just in order to to get that shot. And and they missed it. (laughs) <laughs> missed it. Yeah. Although I guess they oh, also yeah. had the helicopter to get them up to the uh, probably was the same helicopter. No? Yeah, that's probably true, actually. Yeah, yeah no, but, uh, but I, I, I remember I mean, watch, watching it in the theaters myself, and I mean, the, the other advantage of that, lo- that long shot is, you know, because I mean, it just gives the audience time to sit there and go, like, you know, wait, you know, wait a minute, he just skied off a mountain, you know, how, how is he ever going to get out of this? And, it, you know, it just really draws it out long enough to where, you know, then when that, that Union Jack opens up, it, you know, it's just this... Huge, huge relief, and then like, oh, good, okay, yes, now, now, now we can go into the credits. Yeah, but, opening uh, the Union Jack parachute, which apparently um, uh, audiences were applauding that in theaters. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was oh, uh, yeah. the the writer basically said it was sort of a last minute realization that they should do that, and they were worried that it would be disapproved of in global audiences, but everyone loved it. Yeah, no, they everybody knows who Bond works for. <laughs> yeah, but by this point, I think they basically realized that they had to keep the you know the sort of British aspect of it that that was something that was sort of unique to Bond. Uh, yep. where, yeah, and, and, where, you know, that, that separated it in some ways from the other action films that were out there, because there were lots of other things, and they were, uh, you know, that was a definite difference from most of them. Yep. Yeah, and and I just wanted to just briefly touch back on uh, Anya's boyfriend. I mean, yeah, what well, you know was a little bit of a sort of inside humor in a way because it was was Michael Billington who you know I I got to know on uh, you know playing Paul Foster on UFO and he and he did audition numerous times for Bond. So uh, right, you know, yeah, it was definitely you know they you know I, I kind of feel like it was it was their you know the, their little attempt to uh, you know yeah at least at least get him into one of the films you know even though they they passed. <laughs> over so many times for the for the main role 
Paul Foster on UFO was a bit of a Bond kind of character for that show. Oh, absolutely. Uh, oh, yeah. As well. Uh, I hadn't, it hadn't clicked that it was him, but of course you're absolutely right that uh, it was. They, they, yeah, they had those little references in, in UFO at one point they had, um, uh, once or twice they had Lois Maxwell turn up as a sort of unnamed secretary on loan from a different department. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it implied that it could be Money Penny. Yes. <laughs> nice. Uh, another thing after the opening credits and the song, which is another, it's a great song from Carly Simon, um, really one of the classic Bond themes. Uh, you get you get Bond in his in his naval uniform, which is good. I like that sequence as well because it sort of showed him interacting with other members of the military. Uh, you meet for the first time uh, Frederick Gray, the Minister of Defense, who seemed to keep that job throughout a number of uh, government changes. Yes. <laughs> yes, the Jeffrey Keens to Frederick Gray seemed to kick around for quite a while, didn't it? Yeah, it didn't really matter who was in uh, who was in office because he still was Minister of Defense. Yes. And uh, you also, uh, an amusing bit was the, uh, I think is Admiral Hargreaves is Robert Brown, who would later play M. So they just sort of have the guy who played M in that scene as well. There, there were some, um, some, familiar, some familiar actors in there for uh, some of us who follow uh, British TV and the like. Uh, George Baker, well, he of course was in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, that's right. He was Sir Hilary Bray. Right, yes. and uh, he was in the prisoner. He was in many different British TV programs uh, over the years. Uh, Jeremy Wilkin was in that scene. He was uh, one of the voice artists for uh, Jerry Anderson show. Jerry Anderson's shows. He was also in a variety of British shows. He was in the first episode of Blake Seven. He starred in a in a wonderful but very obscure. 60s show called Undermind. Uh, so there were some some familiar uh, people floating around in there, as well as, of course, having uh, Jeffrey Keane as the Minister of Defense. I think that scene was where he was introduced, right? Yeah, that is his first scene. And Bond, in the next scene, Bond calls him Freddy, and then never, never calls him Freddy again at any point in the film series. In fact, uh, from that point on, Frederick Gray's purpose seems to just be shocked at whatever Bond happens to be up to at the end of the film. Right. <laughs> yes, that's right. That they, there is uh, some of that for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, this movie. I, this movie is great. I mean, the, the sequence, the, the scenery is great. The way they phot photographed Egypt is great. I mean, again, now you, you really can't go to Egypt anymore and film a movie like that. They had access to various sites. I think the Temple of Karnak, perhaps, or mm -hmm. um, they had several sequences in several different temple areas. And, and they really got amazing, amazing footage. You almost feel like you're there for quite a bit of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, definitely. They did some very good work with that, for sure. This was also a film where, uh, you know, Roger Moore as Bond is sometimes um, accused of being a little too much dedicated to the humor and not uh, having enough of the, the darker qualities. Well, I didn't feel that was true at all in this film. Yeah. Um, no, I'm out. There, you know, he almost leaned towards the the brutal at moments, 
And, you know, I thought the the tone of his character and a lot of the things with Bond and Jaws and so on uh, worked very well in this. Yeah, and the key scene there being his, his conversation with Anya where, he, where they realized that Bond killed her lover. Not on purpose, it's just that's the way the business goes for these guys. And uh, she says, she's gonna, he goes, it's just business, you should know that. And she says, I'm going to kill you when this mission is over. And I got to say, when I was eight years old, that seemed pretty serious. It's like, wow, she swore she was going to kill him. I don't see how, that's gonna, how she's going to be able to avoid doing that now. Yeah, I mean, I've it, it, uh, I've always felt this film was the one that, that that really gets that balance right, you know, and that's sort of the the cliche about uh, about Moore's Bond is, you know, oh, he's the quippy Bond, and uh, but this is the film where they where they you know ma- you know ma- manage to keep the suspense going, and certainly that whole sequence, you know, from the uh, you know the you know the wonderful setup in the the pre credit sequence, you know, through that whole Egypt sequence where basically it's the it's Bond and Anya just tr- you know trying to one up each other and uh you know where we're still not quite sure exactly where the you know where the loyalties are and which way this is going to go. Um you know they just uh, you know this this is the one where the, where they really got the balance right between keeping the thriller elements and the spy elements, you know, but at the same time being, you know, a little coy and uh, you know a little nod and a wink here and there. Yeah, and of course uh, there's the mention yeah. of Bond's wife having died. Yes. Yep. Uh, it's like a rare nod yeah, to continuity. That, that's right, yeah. And it was also um, one that had a lot more of the sort of political thriller elements to it. And you had a lot of the sort of um, discussions of, um, you know, between several different characters who were involved and sort of knew what was what was going on with this. You had the uh, opening discussion we talked about um, with the uh, various British Navy people who sort of sort of knew what was what was going on here and knew about the subs and. You know, there's sort of the dynamic there. And then later you have the uh, discussion with M and Q and General Gogol and Bond and Amasava. So you have, you know, the sort of dynamic between the, the two sides sort of deciding to work together for a little while. And those kinds of things, I thought, um, helped to bring this up another level. Yep. So those were things that I I quite liked seeing in this uh, in this film. Uh, also, having mentioned some uh, some of the familiar actors showing up in this, uh, this film had a much larger role for Shane River. <laughs> yeah, he's promoted he... to basically Bond's sidekick. Yeah, yeah. he's like the Bond's part... ally. Aside from Anya. He's the next best character to help Bond in the film. Yeah, in the final act, it turned into, uh, uh, you know, like the Roger Moore and Shane River show. You know, as the American um, sub-captain, he basically became uh, Bond's sidekick slash partner for a chunk of the film. That's right. Yeah, no, I thought that was a nice reward to Shane Rimmer after playing the the minor characters for a while. And and this will be the role that everyone remembers him. I mean, obviously you guys will will point out, and he'll always be be remembered for all that as well. But I assure you, when they talk about him, it'll be like Spy Who Loved Me. It will be the first thing they always mention. And I think he brought it off very well. Yeah, I think he did a great job. Um, 
he really he was the 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 loyal friend and then provides good dialogue and some good scenes i mean the, the bit about the major taking a shower or good good laughs some clever dialogue yes yeah. Yes, of course they pl- they played the card of um, the major, and then people being surprised that the major was a woman uh, <laughs> multiple times in this film. Yeah, there's never nobody minds that joke. <laughs> so um, then, I mean, another another great sequence is the whole everything that on Sardinia is terrific. Um, we go and we they get there they get taken out to see Stromberg's. Um, underwater lab, which is also a, a giant, like spider-shaped city that rises up from the deeps, and it's it's an incre- incredible set. Again, as a kid, I was totally transfixed by the the that. I just thought that was the most amazing thing, and uh, it's a testament to Derek Meddings again, who built like a oh, tremendous yeah. good model and yes. did an amazing job at making that look real. Even watching it now, I mean, I know it's it's a fake, and I know it's not that big. But when they do their shots around it, they make it believable. They make you feel completely that it's real. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was one thing that I mean, I wasn't as aware of as a as a kid. Is only once I started, lear- you know, learning more about who uh, who did all this stuff. But uh, but I know watching some of the TV TV work with uh, Jerry Anderson, where he had the lower budget, and there are times when you sort of see those models, and it's like, you know, yeah, you just have you know suspend the disbelief it's i know it's a model but it still it still looks really good but you know when, when, when he got the full budget on the bond films i mean you know both uh you know scaramanga's lair and uh and the work here i mean it, it's just stunning you know so you don't get any of that sense of like yeah those bubbles are the wrong size you know, I, mean, so, you know I can tell it's just a toy it, uh, it, it it really really does drag you in it does look very good the um seeing the the windows with the fish there sort of in the wall i thought was just a little bit reminiscent of dr no yeah, I, I agree. I think mm-hmm. they were going. They were probably going for something like that. Um, this is certainly one of the best villain fortresses. Um, all the curvy lines. It was Ken Adam was basically experimenting with with curvy lines throughout this film. So everything in the tanker and everything on Atlantis is all. It's, it's there's no right angles. It's all very circular. But um, I mean, this the, the the Stromberg's like apartment or his his study area with the tanks on the walls is, is just a great place to, to visit. Uh, the dining room is great with uh, the birth of Venus on the wall. Mm-hmm. And Stromberg, which, which also doubles as the classic like trap door in the elevator. Yes, <laughs> yes absolutely. It's, 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 it's a great villain fortress. And Stromberg, while he himself may not be the best, the most interesting physical villain, he, he still has a cool fortress. Yeah. And he's fun, he's fun to watch as he sort of enjoys using it for his own purposes like when he blows up the the helicopter featuring the scientists he's clearly enjoying himself when he does that yeah i thought yeah, kurt, kurt jurgen's performance there was pretty good i thought yeah no i think it's very good oh the, he doesn't give it that two, much to work with yeah that well that's true the two scientists that he that uh are are rapidly disposed of um who uh who had designed the the tracking system for the subs that turns out to be the um uh, a main part of this um professor markowitz and dr beckman or something and and one of them dr beckman was played by cyril shafts 
who uh, appeared in many British TV shows, uh, Doctor Who and many other things, and uh, was in some of the Hammer Horror films as well. So it was nice to see him show up in that passing role. He uh, is, he didn't have very much here, but he's generally entertaining to, uh, to watch when he shows up. Well, they do get the awesome scene when they have to get on the elevator after they've seen what it did to the previous person. (laughs) The look on their faces as the doors close is priceless. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it it is the the great setup for the helicopter because the the two of them so relieved that, you know, oh, yes, good. We're (laughs) We're not going to be killed. (laughs) Yes. Well, not yet, but. Yeah. Yes. So, um, and then following the trip to Atlantis, you get the the classic car chase, which was so well set up, because usually they talk about what Bond's car will do ahead of time, yeah. and in this case, Bond did have a lecture from Q, but we weren't listening to it. We were right. sort of with Anya watching them talk about it. Mm-hmm. So that, that helpfully kept the secret of what would the car could do until the very last possible second, which again, worked fantastically well for the audience, and for me, I was amazed by it. Yes, um, th- this was a radically different car for Bond. It was a Lotus Esprit, which do- doesn't look like anything else we've seen him in before. No, but very 70s. Like, this whole movie is very 70s, and that's certainly a major part of it, I think. Uh, it is, but they also, um, I believe, chose the Lotus Esprit because it looked like it was a car that could become a submarine. <laughs> it, you know, it, it looked right for that. And yeah. in fact, they uh, they built several different um, uh, different full size Lotus Esprits to to use for that, or several shells yeah. of the Lotus Esprit. And one of them was actually uh, a pilotable submarine. Yeah, Derek Manning's work oh, yes. again, wasn't it? Pretty much. Yes, or? it was absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah. he, I think he asked for seven shells. <laughs> they they could only get two actual cars, and one uh, they could get one one car, and then to get the second, they had to get the one that um, I think the chairman of Lotus had. And they asked yes. him if they could use his car, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, they they had one that could be piloted as a submarine, but it was not pressurized in the inside. You had uh, divers with oxygen tanks. Right. on the inside of it, um, piloting it. But they also, each stage of its transformation had to be a different model. They had one that could fold the wheels, one that could have the the covers for the wheels go into place, another right. that could have the sort of wing yeah. fin-like construct slide out. Uh, you know, So they needed quite um, a collection of different things to do that. Yeah. yeah. And... Yeah. and, and uh, I was just going to say, I'd actually, uh, Top Gear has been running a, uh, a special on all the Bond cars, and uh, actually the, the Lotus Esprit, I mean, even though, yes, obviously it, it, it looks like it can turn into a sub, but uh, it was actually, a, there was a, it was a direct sales pitch from, uh, from the, the, the director of marketing, or, or I shouldn't say direct, it was kind of, he, he came up with his own brilliant indirect sales pitch of taking the, taking the Esprit and driving it to the studio, no, you know, finding out what you know what day broccoli was going to be there in a production meeting, parking it outside the building, and basically, you know, just you know, g- going off 
off and watching it, waiting for them to come out and see it. And <laughs> they saw it. It was like, oh, hey, that looks good. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then mentioning it's like, yes, well, yeah, this it's the new Lotus. You know, here's my card. Give me a call. <laughs> That's great. That is um, very cool. And it sort of leads to what, what for me, is probably the only non-boring underwater sequence in any James Bond movie. Because it, sort of, it sort of moves at a fast pace, like the car and the submarines that try to attack it and all the little divers. It's done fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, everything seems to flow very well. And it's, again, beautifully shot. Uh, it looks like it's really exploring interesting underwater areas. I think that was shot in the Bahamas, I believe, that part. The underwater stuff. I think that's right, yeah. It's it's beautifully shot, but it's sort of the opposite of how the ski jump was shot. Instead of the one continuous take, it was, you know, lots of angles and lots of things going on. Yeah, yep. And that was actually a nice um, contrast that you had, you know, the strange setting of floating in the air and it was the utter simplicity of it. And then this being the strange setting of being undersea and the, you know, sort of very busy complexity of it. Yep. Uh, and of course, the classic uh, scene of him driving out onto the beach, a busy beach, <laughs> and everyone reacting to that. Yes, and it's, it's worth noting. It's worth noting that one of the the guy who does the double take when holding the bottle. Yes, like as if he doesn't trust it. If you watch the any of the documentaries, he he is a he was like an assistant director or uh, someone everyone knew in the community, an Italian director. And uh, he will reappear <laughs> doing a similar double take when Bond does something ridiculous in both of the next two movies, which coincidentally <laughs> are in scenes filmed in other parts of Italy. Right. And then I hadn't really considered that the three movies, three movies in a row, film in Italy. But when you add up Sardinia, Venice, and then Cortina, it's right. uh, they're all Italian scenes. So that guy... Didn't even have to leave the country to be in the scenes. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and it is a very similar, uh, similar thing where he's always there, there drinking, and always <laughs> sees this bizarre thing, and looks at his drink or looks at the bottle, sort of thinking, you know, have I had too much? So yeah, it's a great scene. Um, although, of course, I should we should before we we move on, we should also remember uh, Carolyn Monroe as Naomi, who is an excellent minor villain in this film. She only has a couple of scenes, but she's certainly memorable uh, when she shows up to pick Bond up in the boat, um, and then of course when she tries to kill him from the helicopter later. Yes, fl fly flying at flying and gunning from the helicopter at the same time. Yeah, that's right, and. I guess she she's probably been in more stuff that you guys have seen, right? She was she did quite a bit of uh, British genre stuff, did she not? I think I've seen her in other things. And she did Hammer movies. They said for a couple of them. And oh yes, that's right. I believe I she's actually had a, a fairly lengthy career doing little genre things here and there. She did the New Avengers shortly after this one episode. And she has done some uh, some Hammer films, Dracula A.D. 1972. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, she has uh, the odd thing. I haven't seen her in that many different things. Well, and but, then yeah, but yes, uh, it was uh, a minor role, but yeah, she she was entertaining. 
Yeah. And, and from there, the movie basically then heads towards uh, the big climax uh, on the Laparis, another fantastic Ken Adams set um, built on the world's largest stage at the time. They built the stage just to house the set. They needed yep. a set large enough to house three submarines <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in water. And as it turned out, nobody had a set big enough for this. Yeah, yeah. No, no one had a soundstage big enough for that. That's right. No one had a soundstage big enough for that. And uh, he was sort of learning from what he had done in, uh, in uh, You Only Live Twice. Right. Because You Only Live Twice had this massive set. And the problem was, you know, it was they, they built a soundstage and built a set for it. And it was so huge and such an eyesore that they had to take everything down when it was done. Yeah. Uh, they couldn't keep anything. Where in this case, they sort of built it with the stage and the set sort of built around each other. But it was done in a way so it was, I guess, maybe not as tall or placed differently. But it was done in such a way that the basic soundstage could be kept. And that's what became the 007 Studios. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, it's an amazing set piece. It's fantastic looking. Um, and it, it sets up a really fun and entertaining battle. A little bit long, perhaps, on a rewatch, but it's still pretty much it's entertaining for its entire length. Uh, as Bond teaming up with the American, British, and Russian crews. So it's a very uh, a very Brotherhood of Man kind of uh, fighting back against against the evil Stromberg and his goons. Well, of course, all of those crews had been imprisoned, so that helped in recruiting them. Right, of course, but it, it's sort of a everyone working together moment that I kind of like. Yeah. Yes, it was done very well. It came across as something that, that worked because he was freeing these crews and saying, okay, let's, you know, let's get this done. Yeah, even had time for the young, noble British officer to sacrifice himself rather stupidly. Well, yes. <laughs> yes, but that, that's what they're trained to do. So. That's right. And it gave it, it time for the, the, the bomb defusing scene, which is a chance to add a few light moments to it as well. Yeah. It's a good mm-hmm. sequence. And then, of course, oh, yeah. to, the, to the giant map globe where, where Bond has to save the world in three minutes and succeeds, of course. Yeah, as, as, as we mentioned, thanks to some, uh, some, some rather acquiescent crews. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's one of those sequences where, you know, it, may, it, may, it might have seemed to make sense at the time, but, uh, but it's sort of with the, with the advance of technology since, you know, you, I do find myself sitting there going like, well, why can't he just like, you know, just have the machine automatically enter it in? Yeah, all they were doing was uh, using the thing to, to the submarine tracking device, but that didn't matter because the computer there already knew the launch coordinates yes. of those subs. He wasn't actually using any device. It was like they were sending the ships out to an exact coordinate. They knew what those coordinates were. Right. <laughs> and so, like, when they pop up on the map, it's not because he activated some mysterious tracking device that works in, like, five seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and uh, you know, and that, you know, and of course, after they get the coordinates in, you know, the, you know that 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 whole moment as the missiles, you know, re- re- reach the top of their arc, and it's like, well, yes, we're, but we're looking at it in two dimensions, but they're in three dimensions. Yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, you, you know, yes, yes, potentially they could hit each other, but it's very, very slim, guys. <laughs> I totally thought they were going to hit each other. <laughs> 
I completely thought they would hit each other. And then, although instead, what's true is they set off two nukes in the Atlantic Ocean, which would probably, some people would notice. Yeah. Yes, that would sort of be a problem. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that whole scene, though, is really well done. There's like, they have like sort of ambient noise, like clack clicking and clacking in the machines. And it's a very tense sequence. I really enjoyed that scene. Yes, absolutely. As far as countdown scenes go, that had a ton of tension to it. And it was really good. Yes, the, te- the tension in this was, uh, was good in a number of places. And certainly it was there. We had something very unusual for a Bond film in this, which was the the henchman survive the main henchman surviving and escaping at the end of it. That's right. I mean, they, they were they had a they had a uh, I think they'd either filmed or they'd certainly scripted a death for Jaws, but they just realized how incredibly popular he would be and and how amusing he was, and they just decided out of all of it, let's keep him alive. And so in the end. When he gets fed to the shark in a in an obviously clever Jaws shark play, yes. he ends up killing the shark, which yes. is actually pretty good. I mean, even if they misused him a little bit in the next movie, it was still the right way to go in this film, not killing him. Absolutely. And, that, and the moment that you see him swimming away at the end was nice, too. Yeah, it's like it doesn't really matter how far he has to go. He just yeah. can't be stopped. Right. <laughs> Yeah, he, yeah, he reminded me a little bit in that aspect of his indestructibility of Odd Job. Oh, absolutely. Because you had, you know, Odd Job being, you know, smashed with gold bricks or whatever and just standing there smiling, laughing it off. There was a similar thing with uh, with Jaws. Yeah. And so uh, Bond heads back to Atlantis one last time using a jet bike. Uh, which was also brand new for the time. Mm-hmm, now, right. it's, now you look at it and you think, oh, how quaint. But really, <laughs> it was extremely advanced. The idea of oh. doing that was unusual. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, yeah, that is one of the, one of those moments where you know, yeah, you, you, I had to remember at the time. It was like you know that that, that was a wow moment. When now you sort of look, you're like, yeah, that's a, that's a kind of pokey little jet ski. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then he basically gets to defeat Stromberg, who tries to drop him through the shark tank. I like how the shark reacts on the screen to the noise of the tank being, of the door dropping. Yes. You notice that the shark's like, yeah, yeah, food, food. There should be a guy there. Yeah. It's it's nicely done, and uh, Bond's last dialogue with Stromberg is pretty good as well. Yeah. Um, yes. it's, uh, it's very simplistic. He doesn't really have to go through that much to kill the guy, but it's a good scene. And then, of course, the, the leads to the Jaws fight, which, again, the fact that Jaws doesn't speak uh, and therefore... James Bond doesn't try to engage him in witty banter actually makes those fights more interesting. Absolutely. Uh, I find when he's trying to do witty banter, that usually like cheapens the fights. And you also have them. There was a fight sequence fairly early on that involved Bond, Amasava, and Jaws. And it, it was interesting, partly because, you know, Jaws was sort of uh, fighting both of them, but also because she was not entirely necessarily uh, a good guy. You know, she was trying to um, 
to get a hold of the uh, the microfilm that Bond had uh, at that point. And, uh, you know, so there was that, you know, sort of three-quarter uh, conflict fight there, which was uh, uh, rather entertaining, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it was, yeah, it was all, you know, it was definitely, you know, not just straight up fisticuffs. I mean, you, know, you could see all all three of them just, you know, try, trying to play each other off, off against one another. And, uh, and, of course, I mean, even the way he bond, you know, get, you know, Get, I mean, it's not that he defeats and just, you know, manages to get away from him. I mean, that whole realization of, you know, no, I you know, I cannot take this guy down. I have to figure out what's around me to, to do it and just getting him to slam into the scaffolding and, you know, collapse half the temple on top of him, which, of course, he survives again. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> well, well the, the sequence with uh, there with... Um, uh, Jaws basically ripping apart the the vehicle they're in as they're trying to drive away. <laughs> that was, you know, that was uh, that was pretty good. That was not just played for humor. That was, you know, pretty threatening villain there. Yep, the humor is the next scene where they play the jaunty music as the truck, the battered truck, bounces up and down over the dunes of the desert. Well, that I could have lived without, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. where they went for the slapstick humor. Um, the ending of the movie actually has Bond in a way... It's an interesting choice. I mean, it's not a choice. Obviously, Bond is going to go and save the girl. That's what he does. But yeah. unusually for the Bond movies, this is a girl who has sworn she will kill him when the mission's over. And right. even though... Even though she still clearly flirts with him even after she's threatened to kill him to some extent. Um, there's a risk involved. And I guess my eight-year-old self was probably like thinking, well, you know, she did say she was going to kill you. Maybe you shouldn't really go back there at this point. <laughs> but, I mean, obviously that's the, that's the point of a bond is the sort of Boy Scout. He's willing to go and save her even if she says she wants to kill him. He's gonna he's gonna do this bit, and I like that. It's usually unusually that that that's a choice he's usually not faced with. Usually he's going to save the girl because she's a good guy, and of course he wants to save her. Here he's gonna do the right thing, even if it may kill him. And I like the fact that they didn't drop the idea that she said she was gonna kill them. Kill him. They do come back to that at the end. That's right. They have yep. to. They absolutely have to, and and it bonds the and... fact that he saved her and he's fought for her and. What can she do? She she gives in at the end. Yeah, she does pull the trigger, but just not quite <laughs> on target. Or but she doesn't actually. Target. No, she doesn't shoot him. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, that, that that yeah that trigger perhaps. Um, oh yeah. Which of course leads to the final scene, <laughs> which is the first of the. I mean, they've been they've been playing at the whole. Bond being caught in the act by his bosses at various times. I mean, in you only live twice. In fact, was the was the most recent time when that actually happened. When uh, they surfaced the submarine under his raft with uh, right. Kiss. So oh, yes, of course. Lewis Gilbert has returned to the embarrassment well, where in this case Bond and Anya, in the midst of their lovemaking, are interrupted by their bosses, <laughs> who get a nice peep through the window. And of course, it's a it's a pretty funny scene, and uh, all the bosses can react very stodgy, and were shocked, shocked. I tell you that this could possibly happen, particularly with an agent named Triple X. Yeah, it's incredibly <laughs> hot, <laughs> and and our major stud spy who basically sleeps with everybody he runs across. This could never have happened. Yeah. Well. For 
Bernard Lee, of course, does his wonderful uh, look that sort of the, you know, why do I put up with this guy? <laughs> and then, of course, it leads to Bond's great last line, which is really good. It's, it's like, uh, as time passes, some of those lines become more and more smutty and embarrassing and less funny. Uh, but this one really works, I think, yeah. keeping the British end up. It's it's a really good line to end the movie on, and uh, yeah. a really good movie. Yeah, um, I, good stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this I mean, this this one real really holds up. I mean, even you know, uh, you know, to to my mind, I mean, as I, as, as I mentioned earlier, and I just returned to it. I mean, you know, th- this was the this was the one where sort of all the Roger Moore elements come together, and uh, you know, and it's just just a a, a really nice mix of the suspense, the you know, the the daring do, you know, and the you know, and the the, the humor and the the offhand elements as well. So uh, you know, yeah, this uh, and you know, it's not just because in my case I was I was a few years older than you, Gary. So my my teenage hormones were running wild and uh, basically went into overdrive once I saw Barbara Bach. But yes, uh, you know, but but we all, all all these years later, it it, it still holds up. And uh, yeah, I think it's. Definitely the the highlight of the the Roger Moore era. For sure. Okay, very good. Final take from you, Gary? Well, it was my first Bond film, and it was a great one to start with. Uh, I think pretty much everything worked in terms of the the travelogue. It takes you around the world to really cool places with amazingly cool sets and just a, a great movie. I've always loved it, and watching it again has not changed my opinion of it, really. The plot may be the one place where, I mean, in retrospect, you look back and you say, okay, it's exactly the same plot as, as uh, Spy Who Loved Me for the most part. But you know what? Who cares? It's, it was still a really fun movie. Okay. And I will go with uh, something very similar. It was uh, uh, definitely a strong film after having sort of a bit of a troubled time in the early 70s for the Bond films where there were some fairly, fairly serious uh, flaws in some of them. I felt this was really back to form. The tone was good. There was some humor, but uh, still had a very strong thriller element to it. So yeah, this was definitely uh, a good one. So it has my recommendation. So, James Bond will return in For Your uh, James Bond will return <laughs> in Moonraker! <laughs> Well, let's just see. Did we do better than Star Wars this year? I don't know. (laughs) Okay, thanks for listening. This is Brian. Take care, folks. And this is Gary. Uh, See you next time. This is Edmund. Till next time. Thank you for listening to Hooked on Bond. Find out more at hookedonbond.com or on Facebook. Hooked on Bond is broadcast on Device of Geeks Network at vognetwork.com.